do want to remind you, next week we have a baptism service. It's going to take place immediately following our third service. What we will do, like we did this summer, is we will have those who are being baptized share their testimony here in the Lighthouse Auditorium in the sanctuary before we go outside. We'll have the baptism outside. And so if you'd like to be part of that, hear those testimonies. It's always wonderful to hear how God's working in people's lives. Uh, we invite you to stay after the third, third service to be a part of witnessing those, uh, those baptisms. If you've not yet been baptized yourself, you've believed in Jesus, put your faith in Christ, but you haven't been baptized, I encourage you to grab one of our baptism intention cards. Let us know you want to be baptized, and we'll make sure we'll send you information about when our next baptism will be so that you can participate in the class as well as the baptism when it comes up next. So make sure that you take advantage of that. And we're going to talk a little bit more about baptism today because we are in our second week in our series through the Gospel of John. We're learning about Jesus' life and we're learning about what it means to believe in Jesus so that we can have life in his name. Many people hear about believing in Jesus and they think that it's like believing an idea and that's pretty much all there is to it. Others hear about believing in Jesus or having faith in him, and they kind of think of a vague cultural notion of faith, kind of a wishful thinking, a hope for good things to happen in my life in the future, which is basically just that wishful thinking. I, I, I hope good things happen or positive vibes, that kind of thing. And some people associate faith in Christ with, with that. Others may be even more skeptical, and they think of and they think that religion and, and religious ritual is out of touch with their lives. And maybe they even believe it's harmful to society. And that's how they perceive church or faith. If you're a believer and you've been around the church for a while, you may have a more personal or relational understanding of belief in Jesus or of faith. Maybe you grasp the concept by using the word that many people use, which is follow. You might say that you are a follower of Jesus, or maybe you use the slightly fancier term, I am a disciple of Jesus. Those are great concepts, following Jesus. It captures something about faith that goes beyond action and it goes to trusting him. And discipleship captures the idea of learning from someone, trying to copy what they're doing, conforming to their way of life. And unsurprisingly, the gospels use these words, following, discipleship, to help us understand what belief in Jesus or having a relationship with him is really all about. And John gives us a picture of discipleship and we hear the call for our own lives even to follow Jesus. Still, unless we pay careful attention to what the passages of scripture are saying, we run the risk that the words follow Jesus or words like discipleship, they become vague, like the cultural idea of faith, and they lose some of their punch. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does that look like? So what I want us to do this morning is to pay careful attention to how John, the gospel writer, describes those initial followers of Jesus, the initial interactions Christ had with his disciples. You and I, we can't go, we can't go follow Jesus in quite the same way. We can't go watch his baptism. We can't go sit on the side of a hillside and listen to the Sermon on the Mount as he teaches it for the first time. We don't have the opportunity to do those same things. But John did say that he wrote this book so that we would believe in Jesus and by believing we would have life in his name, according to John 20, 31. So it seems like John 
wants to invite us into discipleship as well. And so the idea this morning is really very simple. You should follow Jesus. And I know that that's not groundbreaking, but we might ask ourselves, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean for you to follow Jesus? If I can't go listen to the Sermon on the Mount, if I can't go watch him be baptized, if I'm not there to see his miracles, what does it mean to be a disciple? And by paying careful attention to Jesus' early interactions with his apostles in John 1, 19 to 51, we're going to discover four dimensions of discipleship. Four things disciples do. Now, this, these are not the only things that disciples do, but they are a foundation for what it means to be a follower of Christ. John 1, 19 to 34, it contains the testimony of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, I know this is confusing a little bit. John the Baptist is not the same as John the Apostle. He's not the author of the book, the Gospel of John. So we're talking about two different Johns. But John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. And we read in John 1, 1 through 18, that the claims of Jesus are pretty, pretty steep. They're, they're pretty big. We heard that he's the eternal word, word of God. He's God in the flesh. He gives life to those who believe in him. He gives them the right to become children of God. John the Baptist, not, again, not to be confused with John the Apostle who wrote the book, he's the first witness to Jesus so that we can understand who he is and what he came to do. So let's read his testimony. John 1, 19 to 34 says this, and this is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel." And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. When John the Baptist refers to Jews from Jerusalem coming to interrogate him, he wasn't being derogatory toward those Jews or toward Jews as an ethnicity. After all, John was Jewish, Jesus was Jewish, all the disciples were Jewish. He was rather using this as a designation for the elites. The elites in Jerusalem, the religious elites and political elites were concerned about John the Baptist. He had gained quite a following. Crowds were going out into the middle of nowhere to listen to him and to be baptized by him. He had a lot of influence. And so the people who were supposed to be in charge were concerned about what he was, what he was doing. 
And I want to point out three highlights of John's testimony, three things he says about Jesus in these verses. And I think you'll see that John was calling people to transfer their allegiance from whatever it is they had it in. He was calling them to transfer their allegiance to Jesus. And the first emphasis of his testimony was baptism. The baptism wasn't totally unknown at the time, but it was rather uncommon, especially compared to how we think of it in the church today. Sometimes those who were Gentiles who wanted to convert fully to Judaism, which wasn't nearly as many as people who are giving their lives to Christ today, but if they did that, they would be baptized as an indication that they had converted to Judaism. There was a form of baptism in which some small groups of people practiced, in which they basically baptized themselves every day as a form of ritual cleansing. But it wasn't really the same thing that John was doing or what we think of as baptism. And so it was something kind of new that John was doing, a little bit odd. And so he was wondering, or people were wondering, the elites were wondering, what is this guy up to. He was baptizing Jews as if he was preparing them for something really significant to happen. And they needed to recognize that the way they were living was wrong and they needed God to intervene in their lives. In other words, John the Baptist was calling them to repent and baptism was the symbol of their repentance and their readiness for what God was doing. The second emphasis in John's testimony was to make sure everyone knew who Jesus was, that he was the one that John the Baptist had been preparing everybody to, everybody for, and was pointing everyone to. He wanted to point people clearly to Jesus. He wanted to tell them Jesus is the true Messiah. Israel at that time was a little bit like evangelical Christ Christianity in the 80s and 90s when people were trying to figure out who the Antichrist was and what the date of Christ's return would be and which signs of the times had already occurred and whether Russia or China was going to be the one to start the, the one world government and we were putting out left behind books faster than you could say Kirk Thomas Cameron. And what I mean is that there were a lot of theories and speculations at the time among the Jews about when the Messiah would come and what he would look like, and what he would do when he got there, and when he would arrive, and, and where he'd be born. They were speculating about all of these kinds of things and what the future of the Jewish people held. The elites thought perhaps John the Baptist was claiming to be the Messiah himself. Maybe he was claiming to be God's anointed one, sent and empowered by God to deliver the Jews from their Roman overlords and bring justice for God's people, finally. But John flat out denies he's the Messiah. There was also this expectation that Elijah, the prophet, would come back just before the Messiah. The prophet Elijah had been taken up into heaven without dying, and Malachi 4, 5 said, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So people were wondering, what does that mean? Is Elijah going to come back? What is that supposed to look like? But John says, nope, I'm not Elijah either. Then there was this expectation of a prophet who would come like Moses foretold in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18. But John turns down that title too. He says, I'm none of those guys. He doesn't fit the expected roles or categories at the time. So what did John the Baptist claim? He claimed to be sent by God to prepare the way for someone much, much greater. And using Isaiah 40, verse 3, he called himself the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's why he was baptizing people. He was preparing them for the Messiah, and he was pointing people to the Messiah. Compared to the person he was sent to announce, John said he was less worthy than a servant, not even worthy to do what a servant would do, 
which was untie his sandals, hardly worth even mentioning. That person was, of course, Jesus. The very next day, John saw him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We can't be exactly sure what John the Baptist had in his own mind when he pointed to Jesus and called him the Lamb of God. It seems like in other places in the Bible, John didn't expect Jesus to suffer and die any more than anybody else. He didn't expect a suffering Messiah. And so we can read a lot in the Lamb. And, and John, the gospel writer, he'll write about Jesus as fulfilling the Passover and being the, the Lamb who suffers and dies. But John the Baptist probably didn't have that full awareness of what Jesus would do. Maybe he just had this idea of, of Genesis 22 in mind, where Abraham had been called by God to take his only son Isaac up a mountain and sacrifice him. And on the way up, Isaac asks, Where's the, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham turns to him and by faith says, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And John, the author of this book, will, will certainly point out to us how Jesus fulfills that Passover, how he's the sacrifice for our sin. But whatever the specifics that John the Baptist understood or had in mind, he knew that Jesus, the Messiah, had come into the world to save the world from its sinful rebellion against God. So John the Baptist's witness was not only that people needed to repent of their sin and prepare for the Messiah through baptism, but that Jesus was the Messiah who would take away their sin. Then the third part of John's testimony was that Jesus had come with a different kind of baptism. That unlike John the Baptist who baptized people in water, Jesus had come and would baptize people in the Holy Spirit. No longer would God's presence be limited to one particular place. No longer would God's law and his presence be something external to God's people. But Jesus was going to fulfill the prophecies in places like Ezekiel 36, 37, or Joel 2, 28, where God said that he would pour out his spirit, put his spirit in his people, and relate to his people in a new way. And John, the Baptist, comes to prepare people for this radical change. He's calling people, prepare your hearts. Be ready to give your faith and loyalty to God's anointed one, the Savior. I think a really good way to express what John was doing was he was calling people to change their allegiance. And you can see how serious his actions were considered by the entourage from the elites in Jerusalem who asked him why he was baptizing people. These people were already Jews. As far as they were concerned, they were already God's people. If they needed a lamb, there were plenty being sacrificed in the temple of Jerusalem. They didn't need this extra baptism. They didn't need another lamb. But John is pointing out, actually, God is sending his Messiah, who will be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He was pointing God's people in a new direction. Maybe you've already noticed that wrapped up in John the Baptist's testimony is the testimony of salvation. It's the story of the gospel. Baptism. We need to repent of our rebellion against God. The Lamb of God. You can't make yourself right with God. He has to provide the Lamb to make you right with Him. Baptism in the Spirit. Only God can change your heart so that you can know Him and live for Him. This is the gospel wrapped up in the testimony of John the Baptist. Repent Believe on Jesus and you will be born of the Spirit. This is the beginning of what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple. You transfer your allegiance 
to Jesus? Have you transferred your allegiance to Jesus? Many people hold on to their sin. They don't want to repent of their sin because they have an allegiance to their sin. They don't think that their sin is all that bad. They don't recognize the rebellion in their own hearts. Instead, they generally consider themselves good people. Perhaps like the Jews, the Jewish elites from Jerusalem, they think their religious demeanor is enough. What more could God want than that I'm slightly better than other people? And so oftentimes, People will think of their sin and they'll think, well, my sin is like an action I did, an oopsie-daisy, a bad habit that I have, but my sin doesn't, it's not really me. The gospel says actually your sin is you. Your sin is a symptom of your heart. And if you're continually sinning against God, then it's a symptom that things aren't right between you and God, that there's something wrong. In fact, the Bible describes sin not as just an action you take, but it describes sin as a bent of your heart, an attitude of your will that goes away from God, and it says this, that you can do nothing about it. That's how you go, it's how your heart flows, and because it's your heart and it's your own will, why would you ever seek to change? Why would you ever want to change? You can't change that. Notice, then, That when God sends a Savior, and John the Baptist points him out, he doesn't say, behold the Lamb of Stephen. He doesn't say, behold the Lamb of Christina, or Sue, or Bob, or George. He says, behold the Lamb of God. Why? Because you can't save yourself. The bent of your heart is away from God, is away from the will of the Lord. And disciples, the beginning of discipleship is recognizing, my sin is not just an oopsie-whoopsie-daisy, no big deal, oh, you know, I'm a little bit better than everybody else, and, and at least I'm better than, you know, that guy down the street. It's not like you get to balance your sin with your religion over here. What the scripture teaches us and what the gospel preaches and what it means to be a disciple is you recognize, apart from the Lamb of God, I am sinful and I don't even want to know God, but only through the Lamb of God have I recognized I need God and I rely on him for salvation. And the disciple says, I now surrender my life to him. I transfer my allegiance to Jesus. Because you know what, before Jesus, we're still, we we all have an allegiance to something. Usually it's to ourselves, if we're honest, we have an allegiance to ourselves. More than following anything else, we wanna make sure that we're following us. We express it like, through things like, follow your heart. That's, That's not Christian, in the slightest. Following your heart will lead you to death, the Bible says. Following Jesus leads you to life. And what we sometimes wanna do is, is we want to sentimentalize our religion because it feels good and we have allegiances to things that we don't understand, false gods that we buy into to lead us and what a disciple recognizes very, very early, right off the bat, is there is the Lamb of God. I am not the Lamb of God. I cannot provide a Lamb for myself. God must provide the Lamb and he's Jesus. And discipleship begins when you recognize I cannot save myself, I need 
Jesus. Many, many people are happy trying to make their own salvation. They're happy to talk about religion. They'll say things like, all religions are basically the same, right? They take you to the same place, right? I'm a spiritual person. I believe the universe can direct us. I've never heard anything so stupid in my whole life. I mean, I'm a, I, I, it makes me angry when I hear people talking about the universe. You want to talk about the universe like you're a scientific person, and then you believe by denying that there's anything behind it that it's going to direct you? Are you dumb? I mean, I'm serious. If you're watching online and you believe that, I'm sorry. It's dumb. Don't be dumb. Come to Jesus. Because to think that, to think that the universe is going to direct you, that astrology will guide you, that crystals or vibes or energy is gonna do anything for you. I'm sorry, if you think you're wise talking about those things and you look down on Christians, really? You're gonna tell me vibrations in rocks are gonna do something for me. But the testimony of Jesus Christ, compelled through thousands of years, changing millions of lives, is hard to believe. I'm sorry, that's, that's just not true. Look, the universe doesn't direct you. Rocks don't direct you. Jesus must direct you. And I think so many people are enamored by these kinds of idols because they don't require anything. Like the gods of the ancient Greece, these impersonal forces demand nothing of you. They can be manipulated by you. They say nothing about your sin, and they just serve your sensuality. Not so Jesus. Notice he is not your lamb. He is the lamb of God and only he can take away your sins. He's also the only one who can give you the right to become a child of God, born of the Spirit, because he baptizes in the Spirit. This isn't a salvation you can manipulate. It's not something you get to control or work up for yourself. It requires allegiance to someone specific, the Lamb of God. Does your allegiance belong to the Lamb? Have you transferred your allegiance to him? If your answer is yes, I hope that you'll be challenged to follow Jesus all the more closely. If your answer is no, I hope that you will believe and have life in his name, laying down your idols and your sin, hearing the good news that God has provided a way out, a lamb for you, trusting him and having your life renewed by being filled with God's spirit. The second dimension of discipleship highlighted here is that you must trust Jesus to define you. Let's read verses 35 to 51. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, probably about four in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? 
Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. We're going to talk more about how the early disciples came to know Jesus in a moment, but I want to point out something, uh, some, something significant about Jesus' interaction with two of these disciples specifically, Simon and Nathaniel. Notice what happens to Simon. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus immediately renames him. He says, you will be called Peter, which means rock. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, his arrest, his crucifixion, this is probably not the name, the nickname, that you would have given to Peter. Certainly not the name I would have given him. After all, he did deny Jesus three times. That doesn't sound very solid or strong to me. I probably would have nicknamed him Flaky or you know, Squishy or Snowflake or something like that. But, but Jesus, Jesus sees better than us. In fact, Jesus sees us better than we see ourselves, not only because he's our creator, but because he is our savior. This doesn't mean we choose a name for ourselves and then expect that God's got to fulfill that or something like that. It means that we should listen to what Jesus calls us more than what we think about ourselves or even what other people say. And if you want to be a disciple, Jesus will redefine you. This is part of what it means to be a disciple. He did it to Nathaniel as well. Nathaniel was skeptical about anything good coming out of the rural areas of Galilee like Nazareth. Lots of rebels and false messiahs had actually already come out of that territory, that region of the country. And so he's pretty skeptical about another claim to be another guy who's the messiah. And of course, he didn't know that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. He didn't know that, as John told us in John 1.1, that Jesus was actually from heaven and has existed forever. When Nathanael approached Jesus, Jesus complimented his character. He knew Nathanael. He knew he was a true Israelite. He was someone who really wanted salvation from God, someone sincere who was waiting for the Messiah. And Nathanael wondered, how does he know who I am? How does he know anything about me? And Jesus gave him a really simple sign and said that before Nathanael had come to him, he saw him sitting under a fig tree. And that small detail convinced Nathanael not just that Jesus could see where he was, but that what Jesus had said about him was true as well. Not just that Jesus could see where he was, but that Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew Nathanael before Nathanael knew anything or had even heard of Jesus. And the same is true of you. Jesus knows you. He knows what's in your heart. He knows if you're sincere or a liar. He knows if you're genuine or you're keeping up appearances. He knows the plans that he has for your life. And if you will submit who you are to him, like he did with Peter and with Nathaniel, he will redefine you. This is really really important for discipleship. It can hardly be overstated in our culture where our own hearts have led us astray to believe that we can redefine ourselves, that I can choose my own identity, and then I can make myself conform to that identity, 
and that everybody else should recognize the identity I claim to have, even if it doesn't comport with what they've seen about me. What the gospel says to disciples is this. Only Jesus has the right to redefine you because he sees you. He knows who you are as your creator. But even more than that, Jesus knows who you are as your savior. How important that second part is. Because Jesus knowing you as your creator is good, but that might just mean that he knows, like he knew Peter was a flake and didn't have the internal strength to stand when things would, would get out, out of control, at least in his own view, in Peter's own view, that, that Peter wouldn't be able to withstand it. If Jesus had merely spoken as Peter's creator, he probably would have said, yeah, your new nickname is, is Flaky. Your new nickname is Runaway, No Courage. Your new nickname is Snowflake. That's what we're going to call you from now on. But he didn't, did he? Because Jesus was not only Peter's creator, Jesus was Peter's Savior. And he knew that after Peter had fallen, he would invite him to come back, and Peter would become a rock for Jesus, who would die for him. And Jesus knows you as well. He knows who you are, and he knows the plans he has for you. And if you're struggling with identity and you're trying to figure out what do I do and I, can't, I don't feel like I can fit in and, and I feel one way but, but, I, but I know that, 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 that what I am on the outside doesn't comport with that, it doesn't look like what I feel, I want to give you a word of hope and encouragement today that you would come to Jesus because he's not only your creator but he's your savior and he will redefine you if you'll surrender to him. He'll redefine you as he knows you to be. He'll save you. Disciples don't come to Jesus to add a little of Jesus to their lives. Like you're seasoning your food or something, you know. You don't add a little Jesus at the end of the meal. You come to Jesus and he redoes the whole thing. He redefines who you are. And if, we've, if you've come to Jesus and you thought you could add him to your life, you're not really a disciple. That's the reality of it. If you come to Jesus and you think, I'm going to add Jesus onto my life, that's not discipleship. Disciples follow Jesus. They don't ask Jesus to follow them. Disciples conform to Jesus. They don't ask Jesus to conform to them. Disciples are redefined by Jesus. Has Jesus redefined you? Have you trusted and surrendered to him completely? Have you done sincerely what we sang this morning and said, you can have it all? Have you said that to Jesus with sincerity? This involves everything, how you think about yourself your priorities, your direction in life, your desires, your aspirations for love, your career goals, your relationships with others, how you think about your money, how you spend your time. Jesus redefines everything. Has he redefined you? Is he still redefining who you are? Because discipleship doesn't stop. So if he's not still redefining you and leading you to become more like him, let me ask you, what's changed? It's not Jesus. Jesus hasn't changed. He knows the plans he's had for you all along, and so he hasn't, like, changed course on you. He's still out front trying to lead you, so if, if you're not being conformed to his image, then what's changed in your life? Has your attitude of surrender toward him changed? Has your heart been hardened by skepticism or bitterness or doubt? Jesus knows you. He knows how to heal you. Come to him in faith that he's still working in your life. 
transferring your allegiance to Jesus, trusting him to define you. These are two essential dimensions of discipleship, but there's another one. Part of it's very obvious in the passage. Part of it's a little hidden. It's a bit like an iceberg. You see the top part, but you don't always see what's beneath, and there are two parts to this in this passage. And the part that's sticking up above the water is being with Jesus. Two would-be disciples in this passage ask Jesus, where is he staying? And apparently, they just want to get to know him. They want to hang out with him. They want to find out who he is by being with him. And Jesus invites them to do that by saying, come and you will see. And when Nathanael was reluctant about the Messiah coming from Nazareth, Philip simply said to him, come and see. To be a disciple means to be with Jesus. Now, we might hear that and think, that was nice for them, but how can I be with Jesus And that's where the part about him baptizing in the Spirit comes into play. Because while he's no longer present physically, he hasn't left us alone. He sent the Holy Spirit. And we're to abide in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. We're going to learn later in the gospel that Jesus says staying with him means loving others, keeping his commands, and living in the Spirit. But for now, let's just note that Jesus offers more than a philosophy. He wants to be with you. He wants you to be with him. He wants a living relationship with you through his word and his spirit and his church. That is by obeying what he teaches, walking in the spirit, loving other believers. And sometimes we express that idea by saying that Jesus wants relationship, not religion. That's a good way to express it. But we should be careful because some people get the idea that this means It's mostly about my internal feelings and what I believe about Jesus or how I understand him or how I worship him doesn't really matter. It's about relationship and how I feel about Jesus and not about religion. But that's a cop-out. And the other side of this iceberg that's beneath the surface of this passage is to tell us that what you believe about Jesus matters an awful lot. Now, you're not going to get it right all at once as a disciple. You're going to learn more and more. But... Who you understand Jesus to be matters for your relationship with him. Maybe you could think of it this way. Have you ever seen or watched that show, Undercover Boss? Anybody ever seen the show, Undercover Boss? Where one of the executives or the CEO or owner of a company, uh, you know, goes undercover like one of his employees and and gets in. He wants to see if there's anything wrong in the company or how they they are growing or or what might be a problem that's going on and what their issues are that they're unaware of. And some of the employees will act like total jerks. They'll talk about the owner or the boss and they'll, they'll, they'll be rude and mean and cantankerous. They don't demonstrate any kind of work ethic. And what a surprise it is for them when they learn that the person that they are complaining about is also the person that they have been complaining to. Their tune changes pretty quick. Their attitude changes a bit. In a similar way, what you believe about Jesus is going to change how you relate to him and how you follow him. If you think he was a hippie spreading the gospel of free love, or he was some kind of modern progressive demonstrating tolerance or affirmation, or he was a conservative capitalist, that's gonna affect how you relate to him. And often, what you'll do is you'll build a Jesus in your own image. But as the early disciples were getting to know Jesus, they were learning who he really is. And beneath the surface of the passage lies great theological truth about the nature of Christ. In this passage, Jesus is called the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Teacher, Messiah, King of Israel, and the Son of Man. Did you know that's the longest collection of titles for Jesus in any single passage in the New Testament? 
In addition, he's described as the one who baptizes in the Spirit, and by connection to the Old Testament, verse 51 says that he will be replacing Bethel, where Jacob saw angels ascending and descending. He'll be replacing Bethel as the house of God, where God's presence dwells. John is very clear. It matters what you think about Jesus. Have you ever seen that meme online of the Jesus standing, smiling, he's got the heart on his chest, and he's giving the thumbs up? You seen that meme? That's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. Jesus isn't your buddy. He is your friend. But when you know that your friend is also God, that changes things a little bit, doesn't it? It just does. When you know that the guy next to you is also your boss, that changes things a little bit, doesn't it? And when you know that Jesus is not only your friend, but he's God, it changes. When you understand he's the Lamb of God, he's the Son of God, he's the Son of Man, he's the Teacher, he's the Messiah, that changes how you relate to him. He didn't come to wink at our sin, but to take it away. He didn't come to approve our lives, but to give us new life in him. He cannot be remade in your image, so following Jesus doesn't mean following your heart. And that's a big, important thing for disciples to understand because our hearts will often lead us astray, bent as they are away from God and tempted as they are by the ways of the world and corrupt as they are by the flesh. Our hearts will often lead us away. And so what does God do? He gives us a new heart. He puts his spirit in us, and we learn to walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. In other words, disciples stop following their hearts, and they start following Jesus. Are you seeing the whole glacier? Are you learning who Jesus really is through his word and then following him? Discipleship involves your head and your heart. It's not heartless doctrine and it's not thoughtless feelings. It's total commitment to the Son of God. Transferring your allegiance, trusting Jesus to define you, learning who he is, is it will all help us to gain a better, better grasp and picture of what it means to be a disciple, to follow Jesus. But there's one more dimension of discipleship that's obvious in this passage, and we're going to look at it briefly. Though I don't mean to downplay it at all by talking about it briefly. I'm going to ask if Shana would come, and we're going to prepare to respond this morning. In the words of Bible teacher Gary Burge, he says this, In each case, the experience of discipleship carries one more dimension. John the Baptist, Andrew and Philip, each bring others to Jesus quite intentionally. Converts make new converts. They speak about what they know about Jesus, and they bring other people along so that they too will come and see. Do any of you enjoy watching shows like that are crime shows or, or shows that have that are about the law where there are court scenes? Anybody enjoy that? It's okay, you can admit it, it's all right. Often a case will involve calling an expert witness to the stand, right? And an expert witness is someone who has specialized training in a particular field, and maybe it's like a ballistics expert. And the ballistics expert is supposed to be able to tell you what a bullet will do when it hits a particular kind of material, or it could be a doctor who's gonna tell you uh, how the body reacts under certain conditions. They aren't experts in the case, they're experts in a field of study that pertains to the case, right? They're an expert witness because they're an expert in a field of study. And sometimes we feel like we have to be experts in Jesus before we can be witnesses. If you wait to be an expert witness, you'll wait forever. 
But you don't have to be an expert witness to be a witness. An expert witness knows how things typically work, right? But a witness was there to see what happened. And there's a difference, isn't there? Maybe, maybe you're not confident enough to say, yeah, I understand all about theology, and we can talk about you know, homo, homeostasis, and we can talk about the, uh, the, uh, the, the kenosis passage in Philippians 2, and, and we, can, we can go into depth about the nature of sin in Romans chapter 1, and maybe you're not, you don't feel confident in that. That's okay, so you're not an expert witness. You know what you are still? You're a witness, because what you're doing is you're saying, this is what Jesus did. Here's how I believed in him. Here's how my life has changed. You come and see. That's what you're doing as a witness. I'm excited about the the class that Pastor Mason is is teaching, and to give you a little context about it, it's not like a a one-off class that we're going to do once and that's going to be done. In fact, we've been working on it. It's been in the vision for, for years, and we've been working on it for months because part of our vision is to renew heart. And part of renewing heart is not only that we would be a church that gives mightily to missions, which we want to do, but we also want to be a church that goes mightily in mission to our valley and to our co-workers and to our family and to our friends and so we've been talking and praying and getting ready for how to train people in this and that's why we're doing this it's going to be offered on an ongoing basis throughout uh, a couple of times at least throughout the year so that people can gain an understanding of what does it mean to be a witness will uh, will a, a class that's six to eight weeks make you an expert witness no, we can't give you a PhD when you're done. We can't give you like a master of divinity or, or, or something like that. We can't do it. But you don't have to be an expert witness to be a witness. You can still call others to come and see what Christ has done. And so from the testimony of John the Baptist and John the Gospel writer, we learn that discipleship involves at least these foundational dimensions. Transferring your allegiance to Jesus. Trusting Jesus to define you learning who Jesus is, and inviting others to know him. Let's start here. Have you trusted Jesus? At a very basic level, have you put your faith in Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the one who can take away your sin? Maybe you've come this morning and you have felt recently a stirring in your, in your soul, in your heart. Maybe you felt restless. You might describe it that way. You felt that something was missing. Some people describe it that way. And you're, you're thinking, like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's wrong in life. Maybe you're, you're a heady person and you think a lot. And, and so you're even trying to put together the pieces about what you believe about the universe and what you believe your life is for. You're trying to figure out what does my life even mean. And maybe you've sought out all kinds of things. And you've heard people talk about the universe and crystals. And you've kind of gone, now nah, that, that can't be it. But there's been something in you that feels restless and stirred and you're here this morning maybe at the invitation of somebody else your boyfriend your girlfriend your mom your dad a friend and you're here and you're 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 thinking to yourself well I guess it can't hurt anything to be here and I hope that today you've heard a clear presentation of the gospel that the gospel is this that your heart is feeling stirred because it's sick with sin and bent away from God, but God loved you enough to send his son to die on the cross for your sin, and he wants you to come to him, and he wants you to have life in him, but your heart, your heart is bent away from him, and so there's this pull in two directions, and as God is ministering and calling you and stirring you, you're feeling a tension because you don't want that in yourself, and yet you're feeling called that this is what I must do, this is where I I need to be, 
be. This is the only way to resolve what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. And so you're in this place of tension. And I hope this morning you've heard the gospel of Jesus, that the only way to be right is if you'll put your faith in him and you'll transfer your allegiance from wherever it is, probably in yourself, to Jesus as your Savior. You'll confess that he's Lord, and you'll begin to follow him. I'm going to ask you if you close your eyes for just a moment. If that's you, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. Maybe you felt that stir recently in your soul. And I would, I, would, I would encourage you to think of it this way, that God is trying to get your attention, that he's trying to get a hold of you so that you can hear what he's done for your life and you can be changed, you can be saved. And if that resonates with you this morning and you recognize that's me, I don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. I've not believed in him. But as you've heard the gospel today, your heart has burned in you. You know that it is true. You're not sure how you know it's true, perhaps. But you have believed. You trust. I want to invite you to express that trust today. And I want to lead you in prayer. And my words don't save you. And raising a hand can't save you. But Jesus saves you. And I just want to help you express your faith in him. And so if that's you... You don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, but you want to begin that today by placing your faith in Jesus as the Lamb of God who can take away your sin. And you want to begin to follow him. Even though maybe you're not confident in your own heart that you can do it on your own, you don't have to do it on your own. Jesus will help you. He will make you new. And if you need that new life in him today, I invite you, believe in Jesus. Come and see who he is. That's you. You don't have that relationship with God through Jesus. And you want to begin today. Would you just lift up your hand as a sign of your faith and say, yes, I want to believe. I believe in Jesus today. I believe that he died for me. I believe that he's Lord, and I want to follow him. Is there anybody like that? You don't have that relationship with God. I'm going to wait for just a moment. If that's you, I encourage you, don't wait. Don't turn away from what God is speaking to what he's doing in your life. Is there anybody like that? If you'd like to respond online, you can respond just by texting the word HOPE to 413-360-61. We'll respond to you. Perhaps you're in a different place. You're not ready this morning to raise your hand, but you'd say, I want to understand more. And if that's you, in just a moment, there are going to be some prayer partners who are going to be available. I encourage you to come speak with one of them about where you're at and the questions you have so that we can help you to continue to understand, to come and to see who Jesus is. I'm going to ask if you'd stand with me. We're going to close in prayer. And as we stand, would any of our prayer partners, uh, pastors, uh, or deacons, deaconesses who are present, if you just make your way forward right now and be available. Because one of the ways I want to ask you, Christian, to respond. If, you, if you're a believer in Jesus, this response is for you. And it's just maybe you sense a stirring in your heart this morning to say, I'm a believer. I'm following Jesus, but I want to follow him more closely. Maybe there's something specific the Holy Spirit has laid and impressed on your heart this morning as you've heard the word of God that you say, I need to follow him more closely. Maybe it's some sin that you've allowed to grow in your life and you need to get rid of it. Maybe it's that your growth in Jesus has stalled and you'd say, I don't know why I'm not conforming to Jesus any longer, but I want to to continue with him. I want to keep following him. This is just for you. It's not the walk of shame. It's just to say, here's a place where we can agree together that Jesus would help us to be more like him in discipleship. And when we're done praying this morning, if that's you, would you come and would you just find one of our prayer partners and pray that God would help to lead you toward a closer walk with Jesus. Heavenly Father, today, we come to you in thanksgiving that you have provided the Lamb of God for our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you have witnessed to him in your word and by your spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that you have called us to follow him. We ask that you would help us to be faithful. 
Lord, you see our weaknesses. You know what's in our hearts. You saw us before we knew who you were. And so we don't hide anything from you. We can't. But we do pray that you would help us as the light of your word and the, and the, the finger of your spirit exposes what's in our hearts. Lord, let us not cling to those things that keep us from pursuing you. But Lord, let us, let us release them. Let us put them to death. Let us ask your forgiveness and be rid of them that we might walk faithfully with you. Jesus, we pray that as followers, we might be continually stirred to walk closer and closer to you, that we might know you more and more, and that we might present you to the world faithfully. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for that. And we pray that you would stir and spur on our discipleship this morning. In Jesus' name we pray and we believe. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to pray, please come forward. We'd be happy to do that. Otherwise, we'll see you again on Wednesday. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.